My name is John, and uh, John Whitaker, if we have not met before, glad to meet you. Typically, you have like Tucker up here, or Kirk up here, or Parker up here, and they're one of the pastors, not me. I'm just John. So that's what you get today is just John. Um, and we have been looking through the gospel of Mark over the last handful of months, and we're going to continue that today in Mark chapter 10. And we've been looking at Mark really under this uh, kind of heading, this framework as the way of the Lord. And the reason for that is this, uh, that typically, probably the most common way we describe ourselves in church settings is as Christians. But the more common way to describe uh, Christians in the New Testament was as disciples. And a disciple was somebody who was trying to learn from his master how to be like his master. And so we look at the way of the Lord, not just because it's fascinating, not just because it's uh, you know, good information, but because we want to be like him. So that's been the whole goal of this study through the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to continue that today by looking at a really, really important topic. And that specific topic is power. Abraham Lincoln once said that most people can, uh, you know, they can handle trouble or difficulty or adversity. But if you want to know what a person really is made of, if you really want to know their true character, give them power. Uh, somebody else once said that uh, power tends to corrupt. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. And we know this, don't we? Like, we maybe have experienced that. We've had bosses or supervisors or other people who's like, that power went to their head, right? I actually sat in this room this week for the Exiles in Babylon conference and listened to multiple stories about big and small abuses of power and misuses of power. Um, it's, it's a real thing. Like, power does corrupt. And, of course, there's the classic line about power from Spider-Man, right? Uncle Ben to Peter Parker, Right? With great power comes great. Oh, man, you guys weren't as on top of that as first service. Apparently, this is not the uh, Marvel Universe crew here, right? Yeah, with great power comes great responsibility. And it's true. So we want to talk about power. And as disciples of Jesus, uh, how do we use our power? Um, what what would it look like as a follower of Christ to, to uh, actually have power in a way that would honor Jesus? A handful of years ago, when my daughter was in high school, she played for a local high school soccer team. Had a young coach who was a new coach. Obviously, he was glad he was the new coach because the power had gone to his head. And it seemed like the only way he knew to motivate the girls and instruct the girls was to yell and to cuss and to demean. And you're talking 14, 15, 16-year-old girls. That's already a hard enough time in life. And then you have your coach just cuss and yell and chew you out, not even in constructive ways. I mean, just from the side, whether it's practice or a game, just yell from the sidelines, you know, that was just a stupid pass. Why would you make that pass? And then lace it with all sorts of expletives. All right, well, he wasn't a follower of Jesus. He wasn't a believer, so maybe that's expected, right? Okay, we, we get that. Happens. But at the same time, she actually played basketball for a local Christian school. The coach of that team was one of the administrators of the school. And though he didn't use expletives, he actually motivated the girls the exact same way. With demeaning words, he was controlling, heavy-handed, overbearing, cutting remarks, uh, yelling and screaming at the girls. Uh, 
And it was frustrating to me and disappointing to me. And I, I actually asked one of the other parents who knew this particular coach better than I did and had known him a lot longer than I had. I asked her about it. And her response was, ah, oh, it's just the way he is. Maybe. But is it the way he's supposed to be as a follower of Jesus? So that's the topic we want to look at from Mark chapter 10 today. Like when it comes to power, influence, authority, control, how do disciples of Jesus walk the way of the Lord in that context? What does that look like? And the reality is, whatever degree it might be, all of us have some realms where we have power, where we have influence, where we have authority, where we have control, whether it be as parents to our kids, whether it be just spouses and husband and wife and the, the negotiation for power in that relationship as supervisors and managers on the job, or maybe we own our own business and we run that, right? Or we're teachers in a classroom, we're principals at a school, we're pastors at a church. Whatever it is, we all have those places where we happen to have power. What's the way of the Lord with power? And that's what we want to look at today. And a handful of years ago, my family went camping up at Bull Trout Lake. Anyone ever camp at Bull Trout Lake? It's a beautiful location. We were camping at Bull Trout Lake with some other friends. Got up in the morning, ate our breakfast, right? Kids had their little sunny delight. Uh, and they threw their, you know, empty sunny delight uh, bottles in the fire pit. It was one of those big fire pits with the high metal ring, right? And threw that in there. And we cleaned up camp. And then we, you know, went for a little hike around the lake. When we, we were gone no more than an hour, when we got back to our campground, all of a sudden, here comes the park ranger driving up in his truck, full speed ahead, uh, slams on the brake, gets out of his truck, and marches into our campground like he's the FBI coming to arrest some felon. And his first words were, I can't believe you guys would leave your campsite unattended and leave that campfire unattended. And then, don't you know how to camp? Don't you know what responsibility is? And... I pointed to the firing. I said, sir, the, the, there, there's so little heat in there that the sunny delight bottles haven't even melted. <laughs> he continued to chew me out, and then he was like, well, that's another problem. You left garbage in your campground. We're going to burn that off just in a little bit, right? And he, he uh, I, I never really knew his name. I just, affectionately, unaffectionately, I'm not sure, referred to him as Ranger Rick on a power trip. And he was on a power trip. And he proceeded to write us a ticket and fine us over $100. He said, I'm not going to give you the big fine for unattended campfire, because obviously there wasn't enough heat in there to even melt a small little bottle, right? Uh, but I am going to give you a ticket for leaving trash uh, in your, your campsite. I tried to appeal the ticket, called the county courthouse for that particular county. And the gal at the courthouse was like, well, you can appeal it. But if you do, all of a sudden it becomes a criminal complaint on your record, and it goes on your record, and you have to go to court. In other words, he has complete power. Whatever he wants to do, he can do. And so that became a very expensive camping trip. Uh, and the campground host, after the ranger drove off, he drove up, and he said, I am so sorry. I still hope you'll come back and camp again. <laughs> um, power does that, doesn't it? It gets to us. 
It goes to our head. It goes to our actions. And all of a sudden, we've got power. And if we're a follower of Jesus, how do we handle that? What do we do with that? What's the way of Jesus concerning power? And this text in Mark chapter 10 deals with that question. And so uh, we've been, over the last few weeks, in this kind of middle section of the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapters 8 through 10. And this section is where Jesus begins focusing on his disciples more completely and more specifically. And he keeps pulling them aside and telling them how he's going to go to Jerusalem. And when he gets there, he's going to be rejected and he's going to be killed. And he keeps reminding them that. And not only that, in that context, Jesus has said, and you, if you're going to follow me, you've got to take up your cross. And you've got to imitate this. You've got to follow my way. And my way is the way of the cross. And what we learn in Mark chapters 8, 9, and 10, as Mark tells this story and shows us Jesus emphasizing this, what we learn is this. It's that the way Jesus dies is the pattern for how disciples live. The way Jesus dies is the pattern for how disciples live. And so when it comes to power and authority and influence and control, when it comes to that, what difference does that make for how we use our authority and power? So let's pick up Mark chapter 10, verse 32. It says this, now, they were on the road going to Jerusalem. And we need to remember where we're at in the story of Jesus' life. We're like, we're at the climactic moment where we're, he's almost to Jerusalem. And he knows it's going to be his final Passover in Jerusalem. He's going there for the feast. And he knows it's the final one leading up to his death. In fact, next week, we're going to celebrate Palm Sunday. That's the Sunday where we celebrate Jesus' entry into Jerusalem as king. We're on the road there in this story. And so they're on the road heading to Jerusalem. Jesus knows what's going to happen. And notice, Jesus was walking ahead of them. Jesus is a man on a mission. He's going to Jerusalem. He knows what's going to happen, but he, he's, he's a man on a mission. So he's out in front of the group. And his disciples are behind him. And as they're behind him, it says, and they were amazed. And so his disciples are, they're amazed at Jesus' resoluteness, his determination. He's focused on a goal. He's a man on a mission. In fact, Luke, in Luke's account of this, Luke chapter 9, it tells us that Jesus resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem. He's focused on it. And his disciples, they've heard his teaching, but they can sense something in Jesus. And they're amazed by his determination and his focus. And then those who followed were afraid. And that's, that's the whole entourage that's also, uh, you know, on a pilgrimage up to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. So you've got this whole crowd and Jesus and his disciples and those who followed, they're afraid. Because there's a sense of foreboding. The rumors about the authorities wanting to kill Jesus have been swirling for months. And Jesus now heading into the place where they have the power, they have the control. And so this entourage can sense this, this foreboding, and they're, they're, they're afraid. And in that context, Jesus does this again. He took the 12, and he began to tell them what was going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem. So he pulls the 12 aside and says, here's what's going to happen when we get there. We're heading there, and here's what's going to happen, saying, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. 
And the Son of Man, Jesus' way of referring to himself, the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes, that is, the religious leaders there in Jerusalem. He's going to be handed over to them, and they will condemn him to death. He's focused. He's a man on a mission. He knows where he's going, and he knows he's going to die. They will condemn him to death. And they will hand him over to the Gentiles. That is uh, the unbelievers, the people outside of the people of God, the non-Jews, the Romans who controlled the region at this point in time. They will hand him over to them, and they will mock him and spit on him, and they will uh, flog him, which means to whip him viciously, and they will kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen when he gets to Jerusalem. And he knows it's not going to go well for him. And is he avoiding it? He's walking resolutely towards it. Even though that's what it's going to cost. Now, in that context, where Jesus has been telling the 12 this over and over and over again, and helping prepare them for that, helping them understand it, even telling them they need to imitate it. In that context, look what happens. Verse 35. Two of the twelve, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, they come up to Jesus saying to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you to. You know how that goes as if you're a parent, right? You're, you're a four-year-old or your three-year-old comes up to you and says, Dad, Mom... Uh, I want you to do whatever I ask. Well, here comes James and John to ask this question. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And in Matthew's version, we know that they didn't even come themselves. They actually got a, a broker to broker the deal. They got their mom to go. And, and in typical Middle Eastern fashion, this is normal, right? If you have a big request, you want someone to broker the deal for you. It's kind of the way the Middle East often works. And so here they come, and they get a broker, a mediator, to make the request, and it's mom. And James and John are standing, you know, and mom asks the question. Um, my boys, you know, they have something they want to ask of you. And, and, and then Jesus said to them through mom, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Here's their request. Remember the context. They said to him, grant that we might sit on your right and on your left when you come in your glory. He's going to Jerusalem. He keeps telling him he's going to die. And all they can picture is this glorious messianic kingdom with him as the king sitting on his throne. And their request through mom is we want to be your right hand and left hand man. We want the chief seats of honor. We want the chief seats of power. We want, we want control and authority in that kingdom. Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask. And this is, this is like true to life, isn't it? So often people clamor for authority, clamor for power. They, they try to climb the ladder and they don't care who they push down on the way to the top, right? So often that happens. And so often, the people who most want power should have it the least. True? So here's James and John, two of the 12. Jesus is on his way to die, and they're clamoring for power and control and authority. And here's what Jesus says to them. 
Verse 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. You, you don't understand my kingdom. You don't get my way. You don't have a clue what you're actually asking me to do. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able, Jesus says, to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized with? What does he mean by uh, the, drink, the cup that I drink and the baptism I'm baptized with? What is he referring to? His death, his suffering, his self-sacrifice. Are you able to, to, to drink the cup of self-sacrifice? Are you able to be baptized in the waters of self-giving love? Are you able to do that? Why would Jesus ask that question before he gives him a straightforward answer? And the reason is this, that in Jesus' kingdom, only those who have been marked by the cross are capable of wielding power properly. Only those who have, have consumed and ingested and taken into themselves the self-sacrifice, self-giving of the cross can actually wield power in a way that truly honors King Jesus. So he asks them, are you able to do that? Are you able to do that? And they say, with all their bravado and all their self-assurance and all their confidence, we're able. We can do it. Because they don't have a clue what Jesus is really getting at. They don't realize what it's really going to cost. And Jesus said to them, well, guess what, guys? The cup that I drink, you will drink. The baptism that I'm baptized with, you'll be baptized with it too. In fact, James, this very James, is the very first apostle killed for his faith in Jesus. You can read the story in Acts chapter 12. Um, about 14 years or 13 years after these words were spoken, James was killed by Herod Agrippa. Yes, indeed, they will learn the way. Yes, indeed, they will learn what it's going to cost, and they'll learn how to lay down their lives. Um, they will be baptized with Jesus' baptism, the self-sacrifice and the self-giving. But, verse 40, to sit on my right hand and my left, that's not mine to give, Jesus says. It's for those for whom it has been prepared by God himself. And Jesus says, you, you don't need to worry about that. Quit seeking after that. Quit clamoring for that. God will take care of that. Your job is to learn my way, to drink my cup, to be baptized into my baptism and my way of life. Now, James and John ask their request. They ask it specifically through mom. And, um, and the, the rest of the 12 overhear this. They realize what's going on. Look at verse 41. Hearing this, the other 10 began to feel indignant with James and John. They realize what James and John are asking, and what's their reaction? They get angry and irritated and frustrated. And again, that's so true to life. What makes you think you deserve that seat? What makes you think you should get that promotion? What makes you think you should get that award? What makes you think you should get that honor? I've got just as much ability as you. I, in fact, I've got more. Look what I've done for Jesus. And they're angry. And they start, you know, bickering with James and John about the whole thing. And Jesus is like, he's on his way to die. And they're fighting about 
Who, should, who deserves the highest seats? So verse 42, calling him to himself, away from this whole crowd of people, calling the 12 to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles, you know those who are known to be in charge, to be leaders, right, have power and authority in the people outside of God's people, you know that they domineer over them. Literally, they lord it over them. They love to be the big boss. They love to be in charge. They love the titles. They love the honor. They love the power. They love the authority. And they love to bark out orders and tell people what to do. They dominate. That's, this is their approach to power. They lord it over them. They domineer them. And their people in high positions, they exercise authority over them. Not, not that authority itself is bad. It's the way they do it. This self-serving, dominating, self-interested, controlling, heavy-handed sort of way. That's how people that aren't God's people use power. And he says, you know that. You know that's the way it works out there. And guess what? We know that too, don't we? Don't we know that? Again, maybe you've had a boss. Maybe you had parents. Right? We, we know people that have power and authority, and they love to domineer people and control people and use it in self-serving sort of ways. We know that happens in all sorts of big ways. Politicians and government and CEOs and businessmen and businesswomen, right? And they love to they love their power, they love their their you know office and their right, they love to control, they love to bark out orders, they love to manipulate, they serve themselves and they advantage themselves on the quest to get more power and more control. We know that. But it doesn't just happen in big, obvious, overwhelming ways. It's a whole spirit that infects even small ways, simple ways. I had a supervisor once at a department store I worked at. I worked in the hardware department. And this particular supervisor embodied this spirit in simple, small ways. One of the frustrating things about working at this department store and in the hardware department was that you never knew what your weekly schedule would look like, never. And the schedule wouldn't be produced early because it needed to be produced late, why? so that Charlie could figure out what he wanted to do the next week and then write the schedule so he could do whatever he wanted to do and give everyone else the shifts he didn't want. That is a small, subtle way of using power in self-serving ways. I, I was a part of a project group with a group of Christian leaders once, Christian leaders from around the country, which meant we had to travel and meet with them uh, and work on this project we were on. One of the members of the group, uh, he, remember this Christian leader, he imbibed this same spirit of domineering and control and authority and self-serving. And he literally said, as we're trying to plan out our trip to where we're going to meet uh, and, and whose town we're going to meet and what we're going to work on, he literally said, well, if you guys won't come to where I live, then I got to find a different group to be a part of. What makes you so important? that everyone needs to come your way and you can't go somebody else's way, right? Like, we know this. People in power love to be in charge. They love the authority. They love the control. They love to tell people what to do. But look at verse 43. But it's not this way among you. It's not this way among you who are my people. 
It's not supposed to be this way among you who follow me and say, you're my disciples. It's not this way among you. Rather, whoever wants to become prominent among you, literally great is that word prominent, whoever wants to be great among you, right? Whoever wants to be important and high and mighty and great, whoever wants to do that among you shall be your servant. And whoever wants to be first, whoever, whoever's goal is to be number one, then they should become the slave of all. They should give up their rights and their preferences to benefit the other people and serve everyone else. They should lay themselves down for other people's sake. Whoever wants to be great among you and whoever wants to be first should be the slave of all. And if you want to use power in Jesus' kingdom in a way that honors him, then what you have to do is you have to learn to give yourself away. You have to learn to give up your preferences. You have to give up your rights. You have to give up your self-interest. You don't use your power to serve yourself and advantage yourself. You give yourself away for the benefit of everybody else. That's Jesus' way with regard to power. In Jesus' kingdom, the way up is down. In Jesus' kingdom, the way to the front is to go to the back. In Jesus' kingdom, the way to be first is to be last and the servant of all, the slave of all. That's Jesus' way with regard to power. And it's completely different than the way the world uses power. And sadly, we haven't always learned this lesson very well. Now, why would we do that? Why would we lay ourselves down for the sake of others and rather than climbing to the top for the sake of ourselves? Why would we do that? Look at verse 45. Because even the Son of Man, Jesus himself, and the Son of Man is a royal title. It's a kingly title. It's an exalted title. Even the Son of Man in all his royalty and power and authority and kingship, even the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is Jesus' way. Why would, we, why would we lay our life down for the sake of others, even lay our power down for the sake of others? Why? Because Jesus did it for us. His example is our pattern. If that's how Jesus used his power, then that's how we're going to use our power. Not only that, his example is our motivation. Like, if Jesus loved us enough to lay himself down for us, can we not lay ourselves down for each other? And so when it comes to power and authority and influence and control, here's what this text tells us, is that the way Jesus dies is the pattern for how disciples use their power. It's not just a generic thing for how we live. It's specifically, that's how we use our power. The way Jesus dies with self-sacrifice, self-giving, instead of self-promotion and self-serving, the way Jesus dies is the way disciples use their authority, their power, their influence, their control. They lay themselves down for the sake of other people as well. The way of Jesus with regard to power and authority is to use it for the glory of God and the good of others. 
That's the way of Jesus with regard to power. To give yourself away for the glory of God and the good of others. Instead of self-promotion, it's self-emptying. Instead of self-serving, it's self-giving. Instead of domination and control, it's serving others so that they can become who God calls them to be. It's laying yourself down and serving others. So what does it look like? What does it look like when we, when we lay the cross over our power and say, in those places where I have authority or influence or control or even some kind of other power, official or unofficial, what does it look like to embody the way of the cross with regard to our power? I actually asked my wife this as I was working on the sermon and wanted her input and her thoughts. And, and uh, so I told her what I was working on and, and kind of pitched that question to her. And her first response was this. Well, it starts at home. If you're going to embody the way of the cross with regard to power and influence and control and authority, it starts at home. And she's right. It's why you get things like what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. Husbands, love your wives and uh, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's the pattern. Husbands, love your wives the same way Jesus loved you and gave himself up for you and the church. You do it the same way. There's the pattern, the motivation. Wives, you respect and honor your husbands. It's the same thing, right? Like there's this, this, what's best for you? How can I care about you? How can I value you? How can I do what's good for you? I don't seek to serve myself, advantage myself, right? I seek to advantage you and serve you. You're number one, not me. How do I serve you? I think <laughs> I wrestle with whether I should tell this, this but I'm going to. Uh, a well-known a well-known pastor, got a national following, has written some books, um, was giving, in one of his books, marriage advice to kind of younger, newer husbands. Here's his advice. Um, Husband, if your wife is failing in her wifely duty of doing the dishes, then you need to repent of your cowardness and you need to confront her. And call her on. Now, you're supposed to be loving and gentle and not demeaning when you do it, but you still need to confront her and call her on it. And if she listens to you, then you've won over your wife. But if she doesn't, then what you need to do is call the elders and, and call her to repentance. And when she finally listens and she finally uh, agrees and she finally submits to that, then you go on to the next wifely duty that she's failing in and you get her to live up to that as well. This is his marriage advice to husbands. Now, in contrast to that, here's a bit of marriage advice I got when I was a teenager. This marriage advice went like this. John, if you can't do the dishes, then don't get married. <laughs> that marriage advice came from my grandpa. <laughs> and he wasn't a follower of Jesus. But which of those two examples sounds more like um, lay down your life for her? The way of Jesus with regard to authority and power is to serve others for their benefit, not to serve yourself. 
It's true with uh, kids and parenting as well, right? C.S. Lewis once quipped that I've seen more bad behavior from parents towards kids than kids towards parents. It's true. Somehow we think since we're in charge and we're bigger, we can just boss them around and we can be a jerk and it's okay. No, it's not okay. Not in the kingdom of Jesus. Um, parenting done wisely and parenting done well and parenting done after the pattern of Jesus is to lay your life down for the sake of your kids. For their benefit. To build them up and to give yourself away. Serve them. To be attentive and to listen. right? To have conversations and be there for them. Man, when you have teenagers... Some of you have either already had teenagers, you're in the teen years. When you have teenagers, why is it that they always want to have the important conversations at like midnight? And you got to get up at five in the morning and go to work. Do you have the conversation or you just put them off? You lay down your life for them, right? The way of Jesus with power and authority and control and influence is, is for the glory of God and the good of others. It's to, to sacrifice yourself for their benefit, whether it's uh, as a husband or a wife, whether it's as a mom or a dad, whether it's as a, a supervisor or a CEO or right, whatever it is, a manager, whether it's as a teacher in a classroom and the way you interact with your students and you talk about and you talk to your students in the classroom and the way you give your time for that, whether it's the principal to school, whether it's the president of a homeowner's association, some of those people can be bad, right? And, and how do you do it? You take power and influence and authority for the good of others and you lay your life down for them and serve the whole. Now, does this mean that there's never accountability? There's never correction? There's never hard conversations? Is that what that means? As a parent, you have to have accountability and correction and hard conversations at times. As a boss or a supervisor, you have to have hard conversations. Sometimes you might have to fire somebody. But the spirit in which you do it and the way in which you do it is not to serve yourself and benefit yourself. You do it for their good and, in, and in, out of respect for their human personhood and their dignity. And that changes everything. The way Jesus dies with self-sacrifice and self-giving, that's the way we use our power and our authority in whatever sphere that power and authority shows up. And whatever relationship it is, we use it for the good of others and the glory of God, not for ourselves, Not for ourselves. So the band's going to come out. We're going to sing another song. And that song is going to lead us into communion. And communion is this great opportunity to fix our heart and fix our gaze and fix the gaze of our soul on Jesus on the cross, right? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so as we take communion today, and as we sing this song and prepare for it, what we want to do is we want to say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for not just paying for my forgiveness, but giving me the pattern for how to live my life. And so we're going to stand. We're going to sing. I'll come back up after the song. I'll lead us in communion. This is an opportunity for you to meditate on the cross and to realize this is the pattern. This is the pattern for how we live our lives. It's the pattern for how we use our power and authority.